us. We're going to study and continue in Luke's narrative. So Luke's gospel, the third book of the New Testament, chapter 5, we're going to begin reading at verse 12. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can read with us. We're going to cover again Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. So what we're going to study here this morning, Luke chapter 5, we left off at verse 11, we'll pick it up at verse 12. Now, we've been reading about Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. And he's in the northern region of Galilee, and he's going from synagogue to synagogue. He's going from village to village. And he's preaching and he's teaching. He's, he's uh, sharing the heart of the Father. He's uh, sharing truths concerning the kingdom of God. And also what he has begun to do is call disciples to himself. And we saw in this chapter that he would call a, a couple pairs of brothers, Andrew and Peter, uh, Peter known as Simon, that Peter, you're going to be a fishers of men. And then also James and John, they were all four fishermen. And we're going to continue to see that Jesus is calling disciples to himself. We'll see that today in our study. But also we are seeing that Jesus is healing the multitudes of every kind of sickness and disease. He's freeing the demoniacs to where his fame is beginning to spread. And what we're going to read is the religious leaders are beginning to come and to watch him. They're coming from all around the region, from Judea and from Jerusalem. And they're coming up to the Galilee region to see this one who's working miracles, who, who is preaching, again, the things of the kingdom. And so as we pick up our text, let's continue. As we read in verse 12, and it happened that he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy, saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So here Jesus, he is ministering in the Galilee region. He's in a certain city. It is believed that perhaps he's in Capernaum. And he has this man come to him who's full of leprosy, as, as Luke writes. Leprosy is a disease known as Hansen's disease as well. And what I understand, there's no cure for leprosy. There's different forms of it, but it can be treated. Matter of fact, uh, we supported at one time a, a doctor here in Greeley that would go to different parts of the world, and he would treat patients who had leprosy, and he would show me pictures of it. And it is a, a terrible disease that is a skin disease and uh, it still contaminates people presently, uh, even though there's treatment for it, but there's no cure. And the statistics are there's about 10 million people in our world today that has leprosy. And it's really an awful disease. And leprosy is spoken of back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 13, it talks about how the priests, and the book of Leviticus is an instruction book to the priests, how they do the sacrifices and their responsibilities and their roles as priests and how to worship and serve and obey a holy God. And that's why the book of Leviticus, as we go through it, we're not under the law, but we make applications so we can serve and obey and worship a holy God in more of a way that pleases the Lord. So here are the priests. They, they were to, if they suspected somebody who had leprosy, the skin disease, they would take them outside of the camp and they would inspect them. And if they did have leprosy, they determined, then they would be isolated because it's contagious. And what leprosy does is it eats away at your skin. Eventually your bone structure softens and your fingers and toes 
are eaten away, and your nose and your ears are eaten away as well. And your body eventually, as it progresses, in the worst cases, begins to you know, ooze with sores, and the body produces a stench. And, and it's terrible. It's a dreadful disease, especially 2,000 years ago, contagious. And it's a picture that we see in Leviticus as we go through the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14, that talk about leprosy, that it's a picture of sin. Because sin, like leprosy, has small beginnings. Just as that skin disease, the priest would look. If you had a bump or a scab, uh, a red mark, and, and they would look at it, or maybe perhaps the leprosy would uh, start below the surface of the skin, and then it would begin to spread and defile and destroy and, and corrupt. And sin is the same way. You see, sin can start out with small beginnings. And if it goes unchecked, how it can end up consuming our lives. And this man here, as we read in Luke chapter 5, had leprosy literally. And Luke, who is a physician, he emphasizes, as he's writing here, inspired by the Spirit of God, that this man was full of leprosy. In other words, he had a very extreme case of the disease. And this man comes to Jesus, and he finds Jesus, and he calls out to Jesus. And he wants to be healed. He knows that he needs to be changed, that, that he wants to be changed. And somehow, knowing that Jesus was in a certain city, and this leprous man breaking the rules and the regulations... And the reason that he did is because if you had leprosy, you were not allowed to come into, you know, populated areas, into cities and villages. You lived outside of those populated areas. You lived in isolation. You would live in perhaps cave-like colonies or tent-like colonies. The only contact that you had was with other lepers. You weren't allowed to have contact with people. You were considered an outcast. You could not see your family. You could not go and worship at the synagogue. You couldn't do any kind of business. You couldn't have contact with anyone at all. And if you traveled at all down the road, you would have to wear bells around the hem of your garment and people would hear you coming. And if you saw somebody coming your way, if you had leprosy, you had to yell, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, and you had to run off the road. So it was against the law for you to come in contact with somebody, for you to touch somebody, for somebody to touch you. And here is this man full of leprosy. He's hurting and he's sick and death would be very near for him. And he wants to be healed. He needs to be healed. He wants to be changed and he needs to be changed. And so he comes to Jesus. And you see this morning, that's the key with you and with me. You and I are to go to Jesus when we feel as though that sin is eating at us. And listen, all of us have been struck with the leprosy of sin, haven't we? Because we're all born sinners. And if you're here this morning and, and sin in the scripture that has affected us, the wages of sin is death. It will bring death to you eternally unless you come to Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died for your sins and shed his blood for you that you may be cleansed of sin, but not only cleansing us from the penalty of sin, but if you're here this morning and maybe there's carnality sin that's eating away at you is causing corruption within you defilement and that is spreading and it's just bringing death to your soul and to your heart to your walk with the Lord the key is you call out to him who will work that change in your life bring healing will free you from that bondage of sin and carnality that has a grip on your life we come to him and watch what our Lord does here. I love it. Verse 13. Then he put out his hand and touched him. 
saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. The reason that I love this verse is because Jesus reached out with his hand, with those compassionate hands of his, and he touched him. Now think about it. Did Jesus have to touch him? Later on in Luke's gospel, we're going to read about how 10 lepers cry out to Jesus from a distance. And he says, go show yourself to the priests. And on their way to show themselves to the priests in Jerusalem for that cleansing ceremony that's spoken of in Leviticus chapter 14, they were healed. He just spoke, go, you know, present yourself to the priest. Jesus, in other words, could have just simply spoke the word. He could have said, just kind of back off here and you're healed. And that man would have been healed. But the Lord chose to reach out his hand, those compassionate hands, and touch this diseased man. And immediately it says that the leprosy left him. All of a sudden, he was full of leprosy and he's healed. And maybe, just perhaps this morning, there's somebody that's here and you feel all eaten up inside and you know that there needs to be a change in your life. You want there to be a change in your life. What is it that you do? You cry out to Jesus. You cry out to the Lord. Lord, you're the one who can cleanse me. And let him touch you this morning. I love to, to think about the hand of God. All throughout the scripture, we, we read about the hand of God, the mighty hand of God. And, and David would write about the hand of God in Psalm 18, that famous psalm. I love that psalm that he writes in Psalm 18 that, that we looked at a while back going through Psalms on Wednesday night. And David, he writes, You, Lord, have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. And as I think about the hand of God, the mighty hand of God working in our lives, I think about the hands of Jesus. And I love thinking about the hands of Jesus because not only are they compassionate hands that reach down and would touch this man and he desires to reach out and touch you, that if you're here and you feel all eaten up inside, maybe carnality and sin has spread and is defiling you and you know there needs to be a change, you want there to be a change, you come to him. But I also, as I think about the hands of Jesus, I know that his hands are gentle as well. You see, as David would write in, in Psalm 18, that your right hand has held me up, your gentleness has made me great. I think about Jesus' hands, the hand of God that was gentle. You see, in John chapter 8, the religious leaders, they brought this woman caught in the very act of adultery, and they threw her down in front of Jesus and said, the law says that she's to be stoned, but what do you say, teacher? And Jesus, it says, scooped down as though he didn't hear them and began to write with his hand with his finger, and they kept pressing him. What do you say? What is it that we do? And he stood up and he said, you who are without sin, and in the Greek it has indication that you who are without the same kind of sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And you know the story, how they, the older men began to drop their rocks to the youngest, and they all left. And I imagine, I just picture, here's this woman humiliated, and she's on the ground, her face in the dirt, she's crying. And all of a sudden, this gentle hand reaches out to her. And lifts her up. And she looks into the eyes of God himself. And he said, where are thy accusers? Has any man here to accuse you? She says, no man. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I don't know what you've done in life that has brought humiliation. Or I don't know what's come to you that, that has caused you to think, can the Lord ever forgive me? Can 
Can he ever love me? That he loves you and he forgives you and his gentle hand has reached out to you and he says, go and sin no more. Go and live for me. You have me as your Lord and Savior. And that's the desire of his heart is for you to call out to him whatever you've been through, the gentle hands of Jesus, the compassionate hands of Jesus. As I think about, guys, this is Father's Day, the hands of Jesus, I think that his hands were pretty callous. And the reason that I think that they were rough hands is because Jesus was a carpenter. And back in those days, as you worked with stone, as you worked with wood, and Jesus, it's assumed that he was one that worked with wood, but perhaps with stone as well. I personally think that Jesus had a specialty of making yokes that would yoke two animals together and come to me and be yoked with me is what he would say. But be that as it may, Jesus had those rough hands because they were all hand tools and they didn't have power tools. And, and he can relate to you, dads, on the struggles of trying to make it and provide for your family, and, and, and to work hard every single day. He can relate to you, and he commends you, and the desires to strengthen you and enable you to do what you've been called to do, to provide for your family, the struggles of working hard every single day. I think about the hands of God, the, the, the hands of Jesus. They were compassionate. They were gentle. They were rough hands, and they were strong hands. You know the story how Peter and the rest of the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden this terrible storm came up and, and they were afraid. And Jesus comes walking out on the water and, and they thought it was a ghost. They were terrified. And, and Jesus said, don't be afraid, it is I. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to walk on the water. And the Lord said, come. And as you know the story, most of us have read it, that Jesus or Peter would get out and, and he would have his eyes on the Lord. And all of a sudden he got his eyes off of the Lord and he's noticing the winds and the waves. And I'm actually walking on the water. And he did what we do when we get our eyes off the Lord, when we find ourselves in the midst of difficulties and trials and our own storms in life. He began to sink and all he has time to cry out is, Lord, save me. And the word of God tells us that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he pulled that fisherman, Peter, out of the water and plopped him back into the boat. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've been drowning in the storms of life and the difficulties of your situation. And all you can do is, is cry out, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Again, Psalm 18, David crying out to the Lord says, I will love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. And those strong hands are available for you as he desires to pull you out of those cold waters to keep you from drowning in the circumstances of your storm. As I think about the hand of God, the hand of Jesus, compassionate and gentle the rough hands, the strong hands of Jesus. I think about his hand, his hands that have a nail mark that's there because he went to a cross for you and for me. And it reminds me of how much love that he has for us, that he loved you and me so much that he allowed those hands to be pierced so that we could be cleansed of the terrible disease called sin. 
Listen, he is the only sacrifice for sin. There is none other, as the book of Hebrews says. He's the only one that can cleanse you from sin. He died on the cross. He shed his blood to make atonement, and he said, it is finished. I've done the work. And we have forgiveness of sin and eternal life and right relationship with the Father as we call out to him, as we repent, turn direction, and turn to him and surrender your life to him. If you've never done that, we're going to invite you to do that today because today is is the day of salvation. And he has saved us because he stretched out his hands and he did it for you. And he's everything that we need. He's everything that you need. And if you're here, you can say, Lord, I need to be changed. I want to be changed. And I want to come to you, Lord, to cleanse me from the penalty of sin, but also for you, Christian. If you are here and you're saying, I need to be changed. I want to be changed. This sin, this carnality, this struggle that I have, whatever it is, that I need healing, I need to be touched. Lord, work in me. Cleanse me. You call out to him. He's ready to reach out to you and work in whatever need that you have. And not only does he touch us, but I love this verse in John chapter 10. As Jesus is claiming to be the good shepherd. And then he says that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Isn't that good news? You are in the good shepherd's hand, Jesus Christ. You're in the father's hand. And listen, the promise of scripture is no one. And no one in the Greek means just that. No one is going to snatch you out of his hand. You're in his hands. And as Isaiah writes, you can look it up as you jot it down in your notes. Isaiah 49, 16, that God says, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Inscribed. It's permanent. It's there. And no one's going to pluck you out of his hand. I love the hands of Jesus, the hand of God. And here he comes. This man probably hadn't been touched in years because he had a severe case of leprosy. And nobody wanted to be around him. But Jesus not only says, be clean verbally, but he touches him very tenderly. When the Lord is around you and around me, when we say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm wrestling with that. Lord, I need to be cleansed here. I need to be healed here. Will you help me? He doesn't say, okay, and then hold his nose, you know, and look away and discuss. He didn't say to this man, oh, ooh. He embraces us and he touches us. And others might look down at you and, and condemn you and, and be negative towards you. But Jesus, he desires to touch you, to love you, to restore you and to change you and bring healing to you. So as we continue reading here, he charged them to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest, verse 14, and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. So Jesus says, don't spread it around. Now we're going to see that he's going to say that to people that he heals up in the Galilee region. Several times we'll see it. And, and he says that this case, again, Leviticus 14, go and present yourself to the priest, says, commanded in that chapter. And the priest, of course, would give confirmation of the cleansing. You know, all during the Old Testament, there's no record of any of the Jews being cleansed of leprosy. Naaman was healed of leprosy. He was a Syrian general. 
And there was Moses, his sister Marion, that was struck with leprosy, and she eventually was healed. But there's no record of the Old Testament of lepers coming to the priest and to go through Leviticus 14, this cleansing, this confirmation, uh, this sacrifice that they were to give. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus ministering, and these lepers are showing up at the temple. And I can imagine the priests are going, oh, we got to review Leviticus 14. We haven't done this for a long, long time. It's been unheard of. So go and present yourself to the priests and, and command it, uh, as in the book of Leviticus. And they would give that confirmation. But here is Jesus says, go and tell no one. People ask me, why did Jesus do that? Why did he tell people not to tell anyone of the healings? Because he did not want this circus mentality in his ministry. Keep in mind that Jesus came to save sinners, not primarily just to work wonders. That would figure in. Of course it would. He's healing every kind of sickness and disease at this time. And I love it when Jesus works miracles, even today. And I believe he works miracles. And it's wonderful to see God move in a mighty, mighty way. But it is always secondary. Primarily, he comes to save sinners, to usher people into the eternal kingdom. And in life, I want to suggest to us, you keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing for you and for me? It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel to give to others. And yes, we can see God work, and we're very thankful for that. And it's glorious when he does that. But don't get sidetracked all the time by just trying to follow after hype and looking for experiences. But you look to be a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. Paul the Apostle would say to the Corinthian believers, I came preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Make that the center of your life and your ministry. And you are going to be in real harmony in what Jesus did. So don't spread this about, but just show yourself to the priest in verse 15. However, the report went about concerning him all the more. And great multitudes, now the crowds are getting bigger, as, as Luke writes in detail, great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he, he himself often withdrew, withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day that he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought uh, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop, let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So 2,000 years ago, when they made the homes, and it is believed scholarship are suggesting that this house was a fairly good-sized house because of all these people that are inside, great multitudes. The house is packed out. And the houses would have flat roofs. They still are that way today. And the reason is, is because... Obviously, they didn't have air conditioning 2,000 years ago. Many of the people today don't have air conditioning. And they go up on those rooftops in the morning and in the cool of the evening to cool down. And that's something that's a custom that they've been doing for thousands of years. And at this time here, we see that here is Jesus, as Luke tells us, in a certain city. 
We know from the other Gospels that this is the city of Capernaum, a city that's located right on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And if you go with us to Israel in February, we're going to go to the ruins of Capernaum, very beautiful place. We're going to actually stand in the ruins where Jesus was working all these miracles. And there is Jesus in this house. Uh, Matthew's Gospel says it was his own city. In other words, Capernaum was kind of Jesus' earthly headquarters, if you would. He spent more time in Capernaum than any other place on earth. And we know that here the crowds are getting great. And here are the Jewish leaders coming from as far away as Jerusalem, indicating that his reputation had spread. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are watching him closely, checking him out, listening to him, watching him. And all of a sudden, these four individuals show up with their a friend of theirs that can't walk, he's paralyzed, on a bed, and they came to see Jesus. They, they, they are going to desire for this man to be healed. So they're thinking, we can't even get in the door. We can't even get close. So I imagine them going around in the back and getting up on the roof, and they decide they're going to peel a part of the roof aside, uh, tear back the tiling, as Luke says here, and then they drop them in the midst of Jesus. So there's Jesus in this house. He's teaching and I can just picture as all of a sudden this, you know, tiling starting to drop and, and, and the roof starting to. And all of a sudden this man on this bed breaks through and, and goes and drops right in the midst of Jesus. Amazing. Now, I've been distracted when I've taught before, but not like that. I've never had anybody drop through the roof and come plop right in front of me. And as we read about it, when Jesus sees that, when he saw their faith, verse 20, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? In verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, departed to his own house, glorifying God. In verse 26, they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we've seen strange things today. I like that. We've seen strange things today. This man is plopped right in front of Jesus, breaking through the roof. As Jesus is teaching, the bed descends. Jesus is looking at him. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven. The greatest need, no doubt, in this person's life that was there dropped before Jesus was to know that his sins were forgiven. You see, that's the greatest need of any man or any woman. People today cannot walk, and I don't mean physically, but they cannot walk through life joyfully, truly. They cannot walk through life with peace because they're haunted by their sins. There's paralysis spiritually, emotionally, rationally. There's paralysis. This guy was paralyzed and Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. And no doubt those guys, I think, that are looking down from the roof down to see what's going on and hearing Jesus say that your sins are forgiven. Initially, perhaps they're disappointed. They're looking for a healing. 
uh, the, I suggest that these guys uh, are, are thinking, man, we didn't bring him to hear this saying. We want him to be healed by you. You've been healing every kind of sickness and disease. Heal our friend. But I also want to suggest to you, and it's just a suggestion, that this guy's heart was full of joy. Because there was something in Jesus' voice as he looked up at him. And the love that was in his eyes. Where he knew that, yes, my sins are forgiven. Good news. My sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders, they're watching this, they're hearing this, and they're going blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God? And they are right. God is the only one who can forgive sin. And Jesus here also, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's the first time that Luke uses that title in his gospel. He's going to use it some 23 times. We know that it's used over 80 times in the four gospels. It's used 80 times in the book of Ezekiel. And Daniel uses that term, that title, the Son of Man, referring to Messiah. So when those religious leaders who knew the scriptures hear Jesus said that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God because God is the only one that can forgive sin. Now, they're not saying this verbally. They're thinking in their hearts this. And Jesus, knowing their reasoning, as we read, said, I'll prove to you the reality that I do have the power to forgive sin by showing practically the walk of this man. And this man got up, he took his bed, and he went home, glorifying God. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? How do we know that the gospel is true? I suggest to you, look around. Look around this sanctuary. People who were paralyzed spiritually, who were lame spiritually, are walking and leaping and praising God. People who have been paralyzed by sin, we have indeed appreciated and have embraced the good news that we are forgiven. As Jesus said that we're forgiven, as the word of God declares to you and to me. The reality of a person's conversion, I believe, is manifested in their walk. If there is no walk, then it's just talk. John, the apostle of love, writes in his epistle, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Listen, none of us are going to live a sinless life, but as we're walking with the Lord, we should be sinning less. Amen? As you are born again, you move from walking in darkness to walking in the light. And when a person is really saved, it will show up in the way that they walk, and they talk, and the way that they live their life. And these guys, man, they're blown away. As they see this man get up and walk, you say, we've seen strange things today. Jesus gets up. He walks out of the house. He goes to the gate of the city of Capernaum. In verse 27, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Now, Levi, as we know him as Matthew, he's sitting there. Now, a tax collector, they would buy a franchise, and they were given a certain area with a certain quota that they were to raise so much money. And the Roman authorities who hired him gave Levi, in this case, this is how much money you raise in, the, in Capernaum, in this area that you have. And no one knew what the quota was, what the amount was, only Matthew. Matthew would have the Roman soldiers that he could use to shake somebody down. So here he is at the gate of the city. He's got his books out. He's got, 
you know, his tax collecting little table there. And it would be Matthew, Levi here that would be hated by the people. You see, tax collectors generally were dishonest. Because anything that they made above that quota, they got to keep for themselves. It, w- it was a commission. So they tried to get as much money as they could. And they were dishonest, and they were manipulative, and they were mean, and they you know, would threaten the people, and I'm going to get these Roman soldiers over here. And Levi, who was a Jew, would be hated by his brethren. He's hated by his fellow Jews because here he is. He's a traitor. Not only is he collecting taxes, but he is collecting taxes for the dreaded Romans. He's working for the king of Rome. So Matthew's sitting there at his tax table at the gate of the city, collecting taxes. And Jesus walks up to him and says, I want you to follow me. And verse 28, take note of it. So Matthew, Levi, he left all, rose up, and followed him. Would you note the order that's there? He left all, then he rose up, and he followed after Jesus. Sometimes, I've said this in my life, and sometimes I hear people say, and perhaps you have as well, is I'm really going to rise up, and I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to get closer to Jesus. I'm really going to serve him. I'm going to have this powerful ministry. But listen, the order here is before you rise up, you need to leave all. There needs to be a leaving before there really can be a rising up. When you read the Gospels, kind of interesting to study notes all the things that were left behind. The people that rose up and follow after him. We've already seen it in this chapter, haven't we? And chapter 5 and verse 11, as he called the disciples, uh, Peter and, and James and John to himself, and there was this large catch of fish. It was a miracle. almost sank two boats. And we see that James and John and Peter, what did they do? They left the fish, it says in verse 11, and they forsook all and they followed after him. They didn't say, wow, we found a way to increase our fishing business and we got to get more boats. And Jesus, be here tomorrow at the same time and do the same thing. They said, forget the fish. We're going to follow after the Lord. That's our priority. I think about how they left the fish to be fishers of men. I think about in John chapter 4, the woman at the well is talking to Jesus, and and she brought this water pot to fill up her water pot. And Jesus says, if you drink of that well, Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give, living water, you will never thirst again. And after he got done talking with her, what happened? It says that she left her water pot there. Specifically, in John chapter 4, she ran back to town to tell all the men, I met somebody who told everything about me. Come and see. So they all went out to, to hear him. But she left her water pot because now she has living water. I think about the widow at name who was leading the processional, the funeral, where her only son was in the casket. And guess what happened? Jesus touched him and he rose up. And it says that they left the casket behind. I think about Lazarus in John's gospel. Again, in the tomb for four days and Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth and he says, take the grave clothes off of him. The old wardrobe. Forget it. Leave it there. He doesn't need it anymore. The blind beggar Bartimaeus in Jericho. 
who used his garment next to him to hold the money that people would toss in his way as he would beg. And Jesus said, Bartimaeus, come forth, come here. And it says that he rose up and he left that garment behind. He left it there, no need of it any longer. It's amazing. As you look at the stuff that people left behind, you can go on, you can go on, you can go on. And I wonder what the Lord might speak to you. And to me, even this morning, are we still held back, weighed down by something that we're hanging on to? Listen, the freest people are the ones that learn how to leave things behind. The people who soar the highest in the Lord presently that are going to be rewarded in the kingdom eternally are the ones that learn to leave things behind. We need to just leave it behind. The fishing boats, the grave clothes, the garments, the treasures, those things should no longer, in other words, have priority in my life. Yet I've seen people, and unfortunately, even in my own life at times, I've been limited in what God wants to do with my life and in my ministry because I was held down, because I held on to something that he didn't want me to hold on to anymore. And, and unlike Matthew, I was not, we may not, Learn to leave it behind. The old stuff. Hanging on. It might be the old gang. The old friends. The old hangout. The old habits. The old things that cause us to be carnal. And we're hanging on to those things. Possessions. Whatever it might be. And Jesus says, I want you to be free. That is weighing you down. It's getting in the way of your relationship with me and being used of me. You leave it behind, whatever it might be. That's between you and the Lord. And then you rise up and you follow him. And that's what Matthew did. And next week, we're going to see Matthew's response as he leaves serving the king of Rome. And now he's going to follow after the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to stop there. And Father, we thank you so much for... Oh, these powerful little stories that are given to us that we can look at and learn from and be encouraged how much you love us, what you've done for us. And Father, again, I just pray that you're the one that sent your son that we can be cleansed of the disease of sin that has affected all of us initially. And I thank you that Jesus came to cleanse us from our sins. But I also want to pray if there's anyone here that maybe you're here in, in this building or listening on live stream or listening to a CD or on, on the website or perhaps on the radio, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. He is your sacrifice for sin. And the wages of sin is death, and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. The Son of God who came, who lived a perfect life, was the perfect Lamb of God who went to the cross because of his love for you and allowed them to pin his hands and feet to that cross. And he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. He made atonement for you. He said, it is finished, as he cried from the cross. I've done the work. I've paid the price. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough. Once you have that disease, you have it. 
of sin. And death will come if you don't give your life to Jesus Christ. That's the truth of God's word. And he loves you so much. That's why he went to the cross. He was thinking about you. He loves you and he wants to save you. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, it isn't about being religious. It's about relationship. Will you give your life to him? He loves you so much. And you can pray right where you're at. That Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me by your blood. Because I believe you died on that cross for me. And you rose again. And you're alive. And as you rose from the grave, you proved that you are the Son of God. That died for me and conquered sin and death. And I now turn to you and I surrender my life to you. Will you be my personal Lord and Savior? And help me to know you. I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for making me a new person and for saving me. Help me to live for you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if anyone prayed that prayer that is here in this building right now, Pastor John's up front. When we conclude the service, I want you to come up, pray with him. Tell him the decision that you made for him. You just let us know you acknowledge that I have made a decision for Jesus. I've called out to him to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to come into relationship with God the Father through him, to be born again. And I also want to pray for any of us that are here that maybe there's sin eating away at you. Maybe there's difficulty that is in your life. Maybe it's an attitude of a heart. Maybe it's something you struggle with. And just as we've learned in these stories that Jesus wants to work and free you, Maybe there's something that you're hanging on to that you're not letting go and you know the Lord's been dealing with you. There needs to be a leaving behind so you can move forward and press on to the upward call to the prize in Christ Jesus. He wants to do wonderful things in your life and he wants what's best for you, but you got to learn, we've got to learn, all of us, to leave things behind that hinder that from God wanting to work. Sin, carnality, possessions, Whatever it might be, it might be a relationship that is wrong and sinful. Leave it behind and trust Him. Give it to the Lord right now. and Make that decision that I'm going to die to self, pick up my cross, and I'm going to follow after you, Lord. Don't be hindered any longer because you're just going to find yourself in bondage and being frustrated and dry spiritually. Give it to Jesus and follow after him. Father, I thank you for all the dads that are here and grandfathers. Pray that you'd help us be men of God that you've called us to be, to lead our families, to be men of the word, men that serve our wives, our children, that we cherish them, that we're gentle that we love them, that our homes are a sanctuary where you are proclaimed and your presence is perceived and there's the peace of God in our homes, that we would guard our families, that we would lead in the way that you want us to. We live in a society that is so mixed up and messed up on a definition of what a father is, what a, what a husband is, what a, a man is. 
For your word clearly tells us how we're to be men of God and fathers raising our children in the ways of the Lord. Lord, help us to encourage them whatever age they might be at. And that we are men that model ourselves after the real man, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we have a heavenly father who loves us. Sent a son to save us and that we're in your hands. Father, I pray that you bless everyone here as we go our way today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.